Christ's name, amen. This morning we're in John 19 on the crucifixion. As, as we were just told, Elena told us that this is Palm Sunday. This is a celebration in, in the biblical storyline. But because I want to get to resurrection chapter in John by next Sunday, we have to do the crucifixion today. And, and I'm, I'm excited about the book of John. It is, it is, I've learned so many things in this book that I did not know before. As I've, re- I've read through it and, um, and looked at the theme that John's bringing to us. As we know, the theme is that Jesus has come and done signs so that we would believe he is the Messiah. And part of that is his kingship. And we saw last week how Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And after a little interchange, Jesus says, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. So why is Pilate concerned if Jesus is claiming to be the king? Think about it a moment. Why is a Roman governor worried someone's claiming to be king? How many kings does the Roman Empire have? Ultimately, one. Herod gets to call himself king, but that's really just to placate him. So is Jesus an insurrectionist? And what was Jesus' response when Herod said, so you are a king? Jesus said, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would rise up and fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. So we introduced the concept last week I want to build on again today during his crucifixion. The the rest of his arrest and his crucifixion. So we have this idea of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the kingdom of the kingdom of God. It's not of this world, and there's a worldly kingdom. We live in this worldly kingdom. We are citizens of this United States, which belongs to the worldly kingdom. The kingdom of God is greater than the worldly kingdoms. You with me on this? Okay, so we are ultimately, our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. But we live in the kingdom of men. So you get the imagery. We're going to come back to this today. And so, and ask us the question, we'll ask ourselves the question, where is my ultimate allegiance? In the earthly kingdom? Or the kingdom of Christ, which will come someday and be fully established on this earth? So with that, we're going to see, as we finish up Jesus' interrogation before Pilate, that Jesus goes from not guilty to condemned. So we saw last week that towards the end of chapter 18, Pilate comes out and says, I find no guilt in him. I'm not going to kill him. I find no guilt in him. So let's pick up chapter 19, verse 1. Barabbas has just been released. And what does Barabbas mean? Remember that? Son of the Father. So Jesus is his true son of the Father, but they released a true insurrectionist whose name means son of the Father. That was last week. So chapter 19 of John, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Let's stop there for a moment. So just this very short sentence. And Pilate took Jesus 
and flogged him or had him flogged. It's very almost a non-event in the storyline. But, and I know that many of you have seen the clip I watched, I showed last week, but the full movie of The Passion of the Christ, where Mel Gibson's portrayal of this is brutal, where Jesus is brutally whipped to, to, not to death, often though floggings took people halfway to death before they were crucified. And sometimes people actually died from the flogging before they ever got to the cross. So whether or not Gibson overdid it or not, I don't know. But floggings were a brutal beating with a whip that would have pieces of bone and metal in them. And it was designed to bring great humiliation to a person. So Pilate seems to be doing this because again, he comes and prays Jesus back out, dressed like a king, and says, behold the man. But he says, I find no guilt in him. In other words, I'm not going to kill him. It appears this flogging was to maybe appease the religious rulers who wanted Jesus dead, and possibly to gain some sympathy from the crowd. It failed. So why was Pilate doing this? See, Pilate wasn't this soft-hearted man. He truly wasn't. P Pilate was brutal in his, his rule of governor in Judea. He was brutal to the Jewish people. He had them murdered regularly. So there's, there's great history on this. In fact, there's a book out there. It's called Pontius Pilate by Paul Meyer. I meant to get a slide of it. It's a great book just talking about the reign of Pilate and how he related to the Jews and the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. But Pilate must have had a deep conviction, this man has truly done nothing wrong. Why would I kill him? As we move on, Pilate learns Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Let's look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, so they see him half beaten to death. Get the image in your mind. Pilate's standing there. Jesus is next to him, brutally beaten. Any empathy? When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is, a, this is very strong testimony from a, a person who could care less about Jewish religion, could care less what Jesus thinks about being the Messiah or a king of a heavenly um, place. He finds no guilt in him. I'll beat him, and that didn't get the sympathy he wanted. So let's look at 7 through 11. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, this is a new twist because before he made himself king. And Pilate said, you know what? He's got this weird view of a non-earthly kingdom. I don't care. But now, all of a sudden, he's claiming to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you 
has the greater sin. So who delivered him over to Pilate? It's either Judas, but the Judas didn't deliver Jesus to Pilate. Caiaphas did. Judas delivered Jesus over to the religious leadership of which Caiaphas was high priest. Caiaphas takes him and delivers him to Pilate. So my assumption is probably Pilate, not now where Caiaphas is being talked about here. But let's step back up a bit. Why does it say, and Pilate was even more afraid? Afraid of what? John doesn't tell us a story, part of the story that Matthew does. Matthew tells us at this point, Pilate's wife sent him a message and said this, besides, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. This is Pilate's wife sending word to Pilate. Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate now is dealing with Jesus claiming to be king. The, the, the religious leaders want to kill Jesus because he's king. Pilate's beat him senseless. They still want him dead. So they upped the ante a bit and said, hey, this guy claims to be the son of God, which is blasphemy to us. He should die. I think I told you last week that the Jewish people could no longer carry out the death penalties. They had to have the Romans do it. So they have to have Pilate agree to the death penalty. But Pilate's wife comes and says, oh, honey, maybe he said that, you know. <laughs> have nothing to do with this righteous man because I've suffered greatly in a dream. And then he hears he's claiming to be the son of God. So Pilate says, where are you from? That's an interesting question. Not are you the son of God, but where are you from? What's he asking? This is why we've got to slow down and read the text and think through this stuff. Where are you from? Does Pilate have some strange view? Because there was the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon, different names, but the same thing, of, of, of Jesus comes from some Mount Olympus type place as the son of one of the gods. Because obviously Pilate is a polytheist, believes in many gods. Whatever his thinking is here, this has is, this is unnerved him. That this man before him, who is beaten half to death, claims to be the son of God. Verse 11, let me read that again to you. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From above is the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I'm a king here. You're a king here. You claim to have life or death authority over me. You only have it for one reason. Because my father gave it to you. Thus, the greater kingdom in Jesus' eyes is what? The kingdom of heaven, of which we too are citizens. So as the story goes on, politics will now become the determining factor. Look at verse 12. From then on, because of this fear Pilate has, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Or, or let's put a different translation. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. 
Communion 16, did Passover, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Three times it specifically says, I find no guilt in him. Then one time, it says that Pilate sought to release him. But then they make this one comment. If you, let me read it to you specifically. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. As soon as they said that to Pilate, he changed his mind. Okay, let's kill him. So what's going on here politically? And this is fascinating. There's, there's pieces of history we get from multiple non-biblical sources. And this is in that book I told you about, Pontius Pilate by Paul Meyer. There's a man named Sejanus. He's the prefect of the Praetorian Guard. In other words, he oversees the guards that defend Caesar. Evidently, he was very instrumental in getting Pilate his job. So, Sejanus is a powerful man in the Roman Empire. In AD 31, Sejanus is accused, along with several other people, of a plot to overthrow Tiberius, who was Caesar. And so, Sejanus and everyone close to him was put to death. When you were that close to Caesar, you got a ring. On the ring, it said, friend of Caesar. And Sejanus was a friend of Caesar. Pilate is a friend of Sejanus. Sejanus, the year before probably, was put to death for insurrection against Caesar and all his friends. Well, he has a friend out in the backwoods called Palestine who has not been put to death yet, named Pilate. So the religious leadership, Caiaphas and Annas and those guys, they obviously are aware of some things. And so this is their last little gambit. If you don't kill this man, we're going to tell Caesar you let a king live in competition to him. You're obviously not a friend of Caesar. Can, can you see the twist in, Caesar, in, in Pilate's mind at this point? He's afraid to put Jesus to death. He doesn't want to. He tries to release him on three occasions. But as soon as they said, you're no friend of Caesar... Okay, let's do it. Let's put him to death. Politics. We know that doesn't have anything to do with our world today. Let's look at the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's look at the crucifixion, verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the school, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I think Pilate feels like he has not much choice here. But his desire here is to just stick the knife in those leaders. What I have written, I have written. I want to show you the sign. So the above phrase is Aramaic. You read right to left. The second phrase is Greek, left to right. And the third phrase is Latin. This covers pretty much every person present, the language they would speak. During that time, Greek was called the, the lingua franca. The, franc, what's it? the lingua franca. It was, it was the common language of the whole land. If you were from Western Europe, the Romans, you spoke Latin. If you're from Eastern area, where, where Jesus is, you spoke Aramaic. So this covers everyone's language. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. So this theme now, the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the heavenly kingdom. Pilate is a ruler in the earthly kingdom. What did the religious leaders say a minute ago when they said, behold your king? When Pilate said, behold your king, what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. Under the Old Testament system, who is king? This is an easy one. Under Judaism, the law of Moses, who is king? Yahweh is king. There is no ambiguity in that. And the people who are supposed to represent God himself and wait for the coming Messiah to be the king, those people say, we don't have a king. We don't have a king above. We don't have a king and a Messiah. Our king is Caesar. The only king of our world is Caesar. This is the epitome. This is the height of apostasy. The very people who were supposed to bow down to Jesus as king have said, he's not our king, Caesar is our king. The very man who is fearful of killing Jesus, but I don't think he really believes Jesus is king. This is the irony in the book of John. He's the one that declares, put that sign back up, please. He's the one that declares, this is the king of the Jews. Not he said he was king of the Jews, but Pilate is declaring the king of the Jews. So irony is when you say one thing but mean another. So irony is usually used in sarcasm. So if I'm walking along here and I stumble, and Eric says to me, nice move. What's he really meaning? Yes. Bad move. See, nice move is not what he really means. The words mean one thing, but his point is, you're clumsy. That's irony in sarcasm. But irony is when you say one thing but mean another. And irony is all, full, all through the Gospel of John, where Pilate doesn't believe Jesus is king of the Jews. But what is John's overall theme? This is the king of the Jews. That's God's overall theme. So the king of the Jews is hanging on the cross. So what is crucifixion? Crucifixion is, in the end, death by asphyxiation. Okay? You slowly can no longer breathe, and you die from lack of oxygen. So. Whether or not they tied your hands or nailed your hands, 
and they would put a nail in above the top part of the hand. The popular thing is they put a nail here, but the weight would rip right through your fingers. So they put a nail in the, in the lower wrist and um, on each side. And then usually the depictions we have, they also tie a rope around, around this part to hang you, keep you there. Then they would put a nail in your feet. And that's usually a piece of wood your feet sat on. The only archaeological evidence we have of crucifixion is actually two feet put side by side with a nail through the ankles right into the wood. We still have both ankles and the nail in it. They found that archaeologically. So it would have been crucified like this. And so you would take hours, even days, to die. As, remember, he's half beaten to death by flogging. In order, as the weight of your body is pulling down on your arms, the only way to get a breath is to push up on your nailed feet to get a full breath. And as doctors have whole, there's whole articles out there online you can find on, on what happens to your body physiologically in crucifixion. The cramping of your muscles in your upper torso from, from hanging like that for hours, even days, is excruciatingly painful. And so slowly and slower and slower, you can't get a full breath. And the more you push up on, the great pain in your legs. And as you pull on your arms and your hands. So you can just imagine the horror of this. It was such a horrible death that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. A Roman citizen, it was too evil of a death for a citizen to die. The Apostle Paul was a citizen of Rome. When he was put to death by Nero, Caesar Nero, they cut his head off because that was the humane way to die. Jesus is a criminal, and he dies the death of a criminal, a crucifixion. In the end, it tells us he was on the cross for six hours, and he died. There are accounts of people on there for two and three days before they died. Now, does that mean Jesus was beaten worse than the others? Um, it does say earlier in John, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it back up again. So at some point, whether or not Jesus expired because he couldn't hold on anymore, or that last phrase, he says, it is finished. Let's talk about that. Jesus' very last word on the cross. If we look at all four Gospels, Jesus had seven sayings, he says, on the cross. Three of them recorded in Matthew, excuse me, in John. Let's look there at um, verse 26. You know, I didn't really finish reading, did I? Sorry, let's go back up to verse 23. Let's read the story. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Why would they do that? Can't they just go to the thrift store and get clothes? Come on, that was funny. See, that this, this, is, this is valuable. Clothes are valuable. They're all handmade. You know, so they, they take the crucified person's clothes and divide them up. And also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, so they cast lots for that. Let's not tear it, they say, but cast lots for it to see who, who, whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we have four women, three are named Mary. Do you think Mary's a common name? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So he's talking to John. He is dying. He's assigning his mother to the care of one of his apostles, John. If we compare this to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says there that at the cross was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who's the sons of Zebedee? James and John. Here it says that woman is Mary's sister. Mother Mary's sister. Which would make the apostle John Jesus' cousin. You with me? This, this is all nepotism here. Jesus assigns the care of his mother to his cousin. Where's Joseph? Most likely dead. Often in those days, a young woman was betrothed to be married to an older man. So good, good chance that in life expectancy was 40-some years old. Good chance Joseph has passed. This is speculation. But what about Jesus' brothers and sisters? Whatever reason, we, we learn that. And we know James did not believe in Jesus, the brother of Jesus, James, a different James than James and John, more confusion, did not believe in Jesus after the resurrection. So Jesus assigns his mother to his cousin John. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. By the way, read Psalm 22, where all these scriptures are there as a prediction. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they took a sponge full of sour wine with hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I say Jesus' very last word, not words, because I want to focus on that last phrase. It is finished. In Greek, it is tetelestai. It is finished. So what is finished? Why, why say this? That we could spend whole books are written on what this means, it is finished. In the Gospel of John, this word occurs several times before. Listen to these, this is on the screen, listen to these. In John 4, talking to the woman at the well, we're talking to his disciples when they come back and seeing Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. He tried to get him to eat. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The word accomplish there is the same verb as it is finished. Jesus has come to do the work of his father, to accomplish his father's work. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said this in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have accomplished it. It is finished. I've done the work the Father gave me to do. The work the Father gave Jesus to do was to save the world. 
Remember John 3.16? Say it with me. You guys are really somber today. I know this is a somber topic, but say it with me. John 3.16. For... Excellent. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is the hope of the gospel. That's the whole theme of Gospel of John. Do you believe in Jesus? And you have that eternal life. But if you don't believe in Jesus, what does John tell us? In that same chapter, 20 verses later, verse 36, John 3.36, John, the writer of the gospel, says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you see here that the work of God, given to Jesus, is to become human, the Son of God eternally. Share with, give me the glory I had with you before, because Jesus existed in heaven before this, but gave up that glory and became human. Live that human life, without sin, went to the cross to redeem us, to give us eternal life, so that we are no longer the objects of God's wrath. The Apostle Paul gives a lot more on this. Let me just read to you Romans 5, 6 through 10. Paul says this, I want you to listen to how we're described in this passage, and look what God did for us. Paul says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So what are you called in this passage? Weak and ungodly. And what did Christ do for you? He died for you. For one will scarcely, scarcely, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how does it describe you and me? But what did God do for us? A little louder. Why? Because he loves us. This should blow us away. Because in our position of weak, ungodly, and sinners, God loves you. And sent his son to die for you. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... So the blood is, refers to the cross. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood. So the blood and cross are, are refer to the same event. Justify, we've been declared righteous by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the fact that he's become alive, he's been resurrected, we were saved by his death forgiven, taken out of the role of children of wrath, put into the children of God. That's Ephesians 2. We were reconciled to our Father, and his resurrection is what gives us life. The death paid for our sins, as 1 Corinthians says, that Jesus died for our sins. His resurrection gives us life. I encourage you to read Romans 3, Ephesians 2, Galatians 2, and all of these talk about the fact that you believe in Jesus. You put your trust in him. And we'll talk a lot about that next week as we wrap up, not completely, but we look at the resurrection of Christ, where he looks at Thomas and says, do you believe?
So, it is finished. Your salvation has been completed. It has, God has done everything in the human life of Jesus to accomplish your salvation. Now it's put upon you and I to respond to it. Let's look at the burial of Jesus. 31 to 42. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Let's stop there. So why break the legs? It hastens it. If you can't push up to get a breath because your legs are broken, then you die quicker. Jesus is already dead. So just think of the brutality of this. Get that picture in your mind. I know it's not a picture you want, but of, of this deeply beaten, mutilated Jesus suffering on the cross and then coming up with a large piece of wood and swinging as hard as you can and breaking these guys' legs. What a brutal act by brutal people. Jesus was already dead. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. A whole lot has been written about this blood and water coming out. And we don't have time to jump in that today. Everything from the scientific aspects of, of when your heart burst, the sword went into the heart of water and blood separating, to, to this is symbolic of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the church has put a lot of emphasis on this thing. But when John says in the next verse, I saw this, I know it's true, so that you can believe. When this is written, John is addressing a, a, a heresy called docetism. Docetism is a belief that it comes from a Greek word um, that it only seems that way, is what the Greek word means, dakeo. But Jesus only seemed to be human. He really wasn't human, because God can't become human. He only seemed to be human. But John tells his story to say those soldiers pierced his body because his body was really just a phantom body. It wasn't a real human body. That, that was the heresy. John said, I saw it. This is true. That sword went in and blood and water came out. Jesus' body was truly, truly human. And we get to the book of 1 John. John says, if you don't believe that Jesus was truly human, you're not a Christian. It's essential to believe in the deity and the humanity of Christ. But let's move on. Lots written on this. I'm flying. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. By the way, he's the Passover lamb. And you didn't break the lamb, Passover lamb's bones when you ate it. And again, another scripture says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but he's also part of the Sanhedrin, Disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also who was a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin, 
who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. One commentator was saying 75 pounds of, of aloes and spices was an awful lot. Often they'd use that many when they buried a king. And so it could be, again, another um, inference towards the way his followers are treating him. We have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both secret believers. They didn't publicly say they followed Jesus because they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. They'd be kicked off the Sanhedrin probably. But at this point now, they said, enough is enough. We will declare our allegiance to our king and we will ask for his body. So can imagine this, let's say Jesus weighed 170 pounds. They have to take this man down, carry him to the tomb with 75 pounds of spices. More than likely since Joseph was rich, he had several people helping him do this. This was a public display of saying, I'm no longer a secret believer. They just killed the man who I call my king. So in closing, is Jesus your king? Are we secret believers or public ones? This is very important. Christ came, we'll see in two weeks where Christ will forgive Peter for his denial. But Christ calls for followers to stand up and say, I follow Jesus. He is my king. And to have an allegiance to the kingdom of God greater than your allegiance to the kingdom of man. I firmly believe this, that, that we have been blessed to live in the United States of America. In its origin, in its origin, the United States, in a lot of ways, adopted some of the principles and ethics and values of the kingdom of God. They were never the same kingdom. The United States was never the kingdom of God, ever. But we, ble we were blessed to live in a country that held to many of the principles of the kingdom of God. But that's separated now. And it's separating further and further. And we have to ask the question, where is our highest allegiance? Is it to Jesus Christ as the king? Or is it to my political party? To my president, to my whatever, whatever, whatever we're called to have an allegiance to in this world, we should be phenomenal citizens. Christians should be the best citizens around, truly. Because we belong to the kingdom of God. And because our desire is to represent this king to this kingdom. But let's not confuse which kingdom has our heart. This kingdom will never fulfill the promises of the kingdom of God. Cannot. But there's a day coming, I'll end on this. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, where these two become one. And I heard a loud voice, chapter 12, verse 10, a voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan, according to the Bible, is the king of this world. But it's temporary. There's a day when Christ will return and take that back. And the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And what a day that will be. Until that day, we serve our king in this fallen kingdom the best we can. And I'm not a, a doomsdayer. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not paranoid much. But I believe higher and deeper opposition is going to come to those who follow the king. So let's make sure our allegiance is certain as that day draws closer, knowing that we're with the guy that wins. But it's not going to be easy necessarily. Father, we thank you for your word today. And according to your word, Lord, it's your word that, that brings righteousness to us and equips us for every good deed. And so, Lord, help us to fall in love with your word. Have your spirit teach us and guide us and convict us. Help us in this church to encourage one another to open our Bibles, to read them, to think through them, doubt them, struggle with them, talk to you about them, but in the end to obey them. Um, as we represent you to our broken world, we bring the hope of the gospel. Thank you, Father. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.